Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Please indulge me in a few personal remarks before we get to the important matters to which we must attune ourselves tonight. I want to say what a joy it has been to have been in your midst for this short amount of time. What's interesting about this is that while we've been here just a short time, I feel like I've known you people for just ages. And that uh, says something about this church that is good. It says that you have a kind of feeling of warmth for people, that you embrace people with a certain degree of affection and appreciation. And that's very appealing to me. And I've been impressed with what you're doing in this church here. I hope that you recognize what you have in your preacher and his wife. Uh, Brother Crozier is uh, an exceptional student from what I've heard, and he is an excellent preacher, and good preachers are hard to find, folks, in this day and age, and you have a good one. I hope you will find time to encourage him in every way that you can, and I hope you have a long tenure of service together. Last Sunday a week ago, I finished 30 years at the Southside Church in Pasadena. They have written me a check for 30 years every Sunday. And what I'm saying when I say that is we don't need to be moving around. Uh, he has established himself here, and you will do well to get behind his efforts and work together so that you bring many souls to Christ. And I look to hear... Great things about this church in the future. I believe you're on the move. I believe you're headed in the right direction. I believe your focus is clear and plain. And I believe that you're going to see great results as you grow along. And I said that exactly as I meant to say it. I want to thank the elders, Brother Adair, uh, Brother Adams, uh, Brother Barnes, and Brother Coleman, and Brother Frazier, and Brother Nash for the kind invitation to come. You could have had a lot of people for a meeting. You chose to ask me to come, and that pleases me very greatly. And so may I suggest to you that you have had as much an encouraging effect on me as I hope the Word preached has had on you this week. So I'm glad we could be together and enjoy these good things. Our song leaders have just been exceptional. Both of them have done their jobs extremely well, and you have sung with them, and we've, that helps a meeting. I don't know whether you know that or not. Brother Crozier will tell you that. Uh, you just preach a little bit better when you have that good song service that's uh, complimenting all of the things that you're doing. Those of, us, uh, those of you, rather, that have had us in your homes, please be advised that I will leave here a bigger preacher than when I came. <laughs> and, uh, the cordiality has been wonderful, and people have gone out of their way to... Uh, make me feel at home, and thank you for being so good to my lady. She is such a special person, and I don't ever apologize for bringing her to a meeting, because she brings something good to the meeting. I love her like nobody else on the earth, and she is a very special lady, and I wish you could know her as well as I do, because you'd feel the same way about it. So thank you for being so good to her. I want to recommend simplicity to you before we get to the lesson two. How long has it been since you watched a cloud sail lazily across a blue morning sky? 
How long has it been since you watched a fuzzy woolly worm crawl laboriously down the steep stalk of a flower? How long has it been since you listened to a mockingbird as it trilled its song to little or no audience at all? How long has it been since you stopped what you're doing long enough to hear the beat of your own heart? How long has it been since you sat and watched the young squirrels frolic playfully in the cool of the evening? How long has it been since you sat and watched the little baby, yours or someone else's, blink its little eyes and in a few minutes fall fast asleep? How long has it been since you just stopped the world and got off for a minute and thought about God and Jesus Christ, His Son, and the church that He established? the church where you attend and the people which comprise it and the wonderful things that happen here on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday night and the wonderful way that you sing together and that your hands are joined and how that you feel good toward one another. We sometimes neglect the important stuff in life because it's little. Don't let that happen. Love one another. Appreciate one another. Care. I'm not saying compromise. I'm saying love and be strong at the same time. Thank you for tolerating me my little speech. I shall read this evening from Second Peter chapter 1. With your kind permission, you're welcome to follow along or you're welcome to just listen with great carefulness as we have done in some of the evenings past. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them who have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called you to great and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and the virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, the godliness, brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness, love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. The book of Second Peter is many times referred to as the book of hope. And there's a good reason for that. Hope is a wonderful human apparatus. It's the only human apparatus that does precisely and exactly what it does. Hope is that which reaches off into the future and attaches itself onto something that you desire and have a fond and warm expectation of receiving. 
in our instance, hope is looking with the eye of faith to heaven. The Hebrew writer calls it an anchor for the soul. So what it is is that which you have taken as an anchor and pitched off into the future. And it lands at the very feet of the throne of God. And when things are difficult and when times are hard, you just pull on the rope. You just grab hold of the knot and you pull the rope. No matter the situation, no matter how bad, no matter how difficult, no matter how trying, you just pull the rope. The book of Second Peter then contains so many rousing statements which refer to this great desire and expectation of eternal assurances of God in regard to them. This theme is vital because hope stimulates us to seek after His deliverance. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the, the godly out of temptation. He knows how to do that. He can help us. And it energizes our efforts toward faithfulness. We need the prodding. Are you aware, ladies and gentlemen, that our English word motive is kin to our English word motor? They came from the same source. And they described the same thing. Motive is what energizes us. It keeps us going forward. And this is our hope in Jesus Christ. But the day of the Lord will come, he says in chapter 3, is a thief in the night in which the dead are going to rise and the earth is going to melt with a fervent heat. That will take place. And finally, hope stabilizes our confidence. Holy men of God spake as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so I suggest to you that this business of hope is what we're all about. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. In this reading, which we've read in your hearing tonight, there are stated the provisions of God. He has made marvelous and immaculate provisions for us. He says the things that are given unto us pertain to life and godliness. Listen carefully. They pertain to life because spiritual life, our union with God, is what we're all about. I've said to you on repeated occasions this week that what we live here in this life is unimportant except as it secures for us what is in the future. What we live here is a probationary period, during which time we were given the grand opportunity of fitting ourselves for eternity. And so He has given us, He says in this passage, all things that pertain to life and godliness, spiritual life, our union with God, things pertaining to godliness describe for us how to live life. A kind of life which corresponds to our confession of God. A practical kind of religion. And so we have everything that pertains unto life and godliness. And he says, through the knowledge of Him who has called you to glory and virtue. It is through our relationship with God. And this knowledge here is a knowledge that is grander than just knowing. It's a kind of being together. It's a kind of fellowship knowledge. It's a kind of knowledge that is intercourse. It's that kind of knowledge. The Scripture says Adam knew his wife. He's not talking about the fact that he shook hands with her. 
He's saying that they had intercourse. He knew his wife. This is the kind of knowledge that we're talking about. It is an intimate association between one and his God. It is a knowledge directed toward an object that gets gradually nearer and nearer and more and more important all along. The Greek word for knowing is gnosko. This word is an intensive form of that. It is epigenosko. And so this is an ever-increasing, ever-deepening kind of relationship with Christ. This describes, if you please, the idea of growth in the Christian's life. It describes the idea of spiritual progress or spiritual enrichment. It describes the idea of faith becoming so practical that it becomes so vital a part of us that we can barely subsist in the, in the absence of it. And he says, whereby in this kind of connection are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Promises are so important. They're important to faith because without promises there won't be any faith. Faith is the faculty for seeing the unseen. It is predicated always on some promise, and some promise given by someone who is entirely capable of fulfilling the promise, so much so that you believe the promise to the extent that it has already happened in your own mind. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of deepening sort of faith that we have. His promises are special to us. They are great because of who gave them They are special, they are precious because of what they provide for us. They are, first of all, great because of who gave them. I preached a meeting one time in Chicago. And I was coming home, and I got back to the house, and Norma, as she always did, the first thing she did, got all my dirty clothes out and washed them, because I'm about to leave again. And so she's taking my things out, and she says, where's your jewelry? I said, well, it's in there. I put my keys in there. Your keys are here. Your jewelry is not here. To make a long story short, somebody rifled my bag and took my jewelry. Now, there wasn't anything much in there, some cufflinks. Uh, my wedding band was in there. It was a cheap wedding band, and I know it was cheap because uh, it shrunk up after the first year about four sizes. I, I couldn't wear it anymore, so I carried it around in my jewelry box. There were some couplings in there that were given to me by my father-in-law, who was an elder in the Lord's Church and a great and godly man. And I treasured those because of who gave them to me. They were special because of that. Listen, the promises of God are given by God. Can you get hold of that? They were given by the Creator of the universe, who said, I'm going to give you exceeding great and precious promises. And they're multitudinous in their number, and their quality is inestimable, and their longevity is indefatigable. They're never going to wear out. These are the kind of promises on which I predicated my faith. They are exceeding great and precious promises, not only because of who gave them, but because of what they do for us. And our knowledge of them as if they had already come to pass is like saying, I know I'm going to heaven because God said if I do this, He's going to take me there. Oh, precious thought. And so then, by these, He said, by these, by this epigenosis, by this close association, by these promises that are articulated by the Lord of glory, the Creator of the universe, we became partakers of the divine nature. 
partakers are takers part of something. We become, he says, partakers of the divine nature. Now, we cannot be deity. Deity is comprised of two, and at least two, and maybe three things. Omnipotence, omnipotence, omni means all, and potent. You know that word, don't you? Omnipotent. That means all-powerful. We can't be all-powerful. Only God can be that. Omniscience. You know that word, too. You just don't know you know it. Omni is always all. And science. Omniscience. Which is just all-knowing. And then we usually think of all-present. Omnipresent. All-present. I rather think that the first two embody the third. He doesn't have to be everywhere at once to know everything that's going on everywhere at once. And so God is possessed of deity. But that does not argue that he's not doing what he says he will do, what he's providing, what he says he will provide. He says you become partakers of the divine nature. What is the nature of this omnipotence? What is the nature of this omniscience? Not of his attributes of deity, but of divinity. We become like him. We become holy. Be ye holy, he says, Hebrews 12.10. Even as I am holy. God is benevolent. We become benevolent. God is omniscient. We become omniscient. If you hang around God long enough, you come to look like God. You ever know people have been married 50, 60, sometimes 70 years anymore, and they come to look alike? I'm always hoping that I'm getting more, that Norma's getting more, I'm getting more to look like her than she is like me. But they do. And, and it's not just a, a visage. It's because they have adopted one another's good things. They move ahead the same way. They shake a hand the same way. They gesture the same way. And it's because of intimate familiarity. We become like God. We become partakers of the divine nature. We become kind like He is and merciful like He is and loving and caring and beneficent and all of the other things like tenderness and godliness and richness. Having turned our backs on sin, then... We become partakers of the divine nature because we don't, uh, uh, we don't associate with the things that, uh, that, that are in culture. If you have an intimate association with culture, you become like culture. If you have an intimate association with God, you become like God. The choice is yours. Make a wise choice, I beg of you. One where you present your body a living sacrifice to God. Holy acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And so then, we've turned our backs on sin and the corruption that is, in, that is in the world because we have become associates of God Almighty and we become His children and He becomes our Father. Now, having laid that wonderful foundation, He said, and besides this, beside the knowledge of all of this, alongside of all of this, add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. This little word, add, 
is a wonderful word in the Greek. It is the word epikorygane. Epikorygane. Do you hear chorus in that? Or do you hear choreography in that? Well, it's good because that's the way it is. The old Greek word that became epikorygane, which means to supply in the new Greek koine. The old classical Greek word was a used a word that was used to describe a choreographer. You see, the Greeks would compete against the Spartans and they would have theatrical productions and they would stage these elaborate theologi- these elaborate theatrical things and, and they would have a fellow who was in charge of them. He would many times write the production. He would many times star and play two or three roles in the production. He would wear a mask for each role that he, wrote, or that he uh, uh, played. That's where we get the word hypocrite, as a matter of fact, one who wears a mask. And so he was the Epicorean. He would point in when somebody was supposed to point in. Now, what we have here is a director. And you are the director. It is your job to orchestrate your life. You stand on the podium. You stand there with everything at your fingertip. You have a store that has been made that you're to follow. That is the Word of God. You have in that store various movements. That is the growth process. There is in that score a thematic which runs all the way through everything about which we will speak in a moment. And all of that is under your direction. You are the Lord of your life. You are the epichoreographer rather, of your life. Now, if you were to go to the Nashville Symphony and they have a wonderful one, you would see that the orchestra is arranged in a certain way. You have the conductor standing here, and you have over on the left-hand side the string instruments, the violins particularly. On the right-hand side, you will have the violas and the cellos, and then behind them the big bass violins. And then in the middle, you will have the the, the woodwind instruments, the clarinets, the uh, oboe, the uh, bassoon, the saxophones, the little piccolo, the flutes, and those. And over on the other side, back of that, you will have the tenor instruments. And that will be like the French horns and the baritones and the trombones and those tenor-type instruments. And then behind that, you have the trumpets. And they put them way at the back because they're loud. Trumpets are like tenors. You never do need but one tenor for a whole chorus. They're always loud. Now, what I'm saying to you is that the orchestra is arranged. You see the preacher laugh when I said that. He sat behind me. See, I knew. You have this orchestra arranged there, and you're in control of it. It is your job to point this in, and to point this in, and to point this in when it's time. All the while watching the score so that you're, you're, you're doing the orchestration according to what the score says. Now then, he says, add to your faith. I want to tell you that faith plays all the time. Faith is the central thematic. Faith is the predicate on which you build your orchestrated life. 
If you wanted to add to your faith virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, I don't care if you add virtue, that takes faith. If you add knowledge, that takes faith. If you add temperance, that takes faith. If you add the others, that takes faith. So faith is playing all the time. I remember distinctly when I was working in radio when the jingle first became popular, the radio jingle. And it, what it was was a radio signature. I remember the Pepper Recording Company in Dallas produced all the jingles that we used back in those years. And it was a musical signature. And I still remember the one where the station was that I had a partnership in. It said, la, da, 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 da. And they took those simple notes and they'd make a theme that would be an afternoon theme by running it with cascading strings. And they'd take that and do a John Philip Sousa arrangement of those same chords and they would make it a sports theme. Or they'd take a telegrapher's key and go, da, 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 and behind it and it'd be a news theme. But it was always the same ones and when you heard that, you knew that you were on that station. That was the thematic. Faith is the thematic of the well-orchestrated life. You have to have faith or you can't add to all these other things. You can't supply all these other things. To your faith, you supply these other things, and you're in charge of doing so. Now, with those things said, let's look at the well-orchestrated life. He says, add to your faith virtue. Add to your faith virtue. Virtue is an interesting word in the Greek. It is the Greek word arete. Arete. It's a really interesting word because it means backbone. It originally was a ridge. And then eventually it became known as backbone. It is the energy, ladies and gentlemen, for translating your faith into action. We usually think of it as moral fiber. Moral fiber. It is the courage to do right without regard to the consequences. Now, let, let me say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that that's hard. Because we so often reason not from faith, but from consequences. We say, if I say that, or if I take a stand for that, if I tell them that I don't believe that that'll work, if I say I'm not going to that, if I say I'm not going to wear that, if I say I'm not going to talk that way, then I become marked and I'm going to consequently be hurt. That's reasoning from consequences. Here's reasoning from your faith. I can't do that because the Bible says... That's reasoning from faith. Now, that's what we do, and it takes courage to do that. So you have to add to your faith virtue. It's not enough just to have faith. You have to add to your faith the kind of moral suasion that causes you to take a stand on that faith. I've forgotten which of the Greeks it was that said, Give me a lever and a place to stand, and I will move the earth. And that's right with your faith. And the lever with which you move the earth is your virtue. You have a place to stand, that's your faith, and the level that you, the lever rather is your virtue. And then he said, add to your faith virtue, and then knowledge. Now please be advised, faith does not stop playing. You've already added virtue now, that's the second violin section over here, and you, now you're adding to faith and virtue knowledge. All these things are sequential. Don't be afraid of that term. Remember when the Ford Motor Company came out with a sequential turn signal? That There were a bank of lights on the back of the car, and you'd push, push the turn signal thing up, and this light would come on, and immediately this one would come off, go off, and this one would come on, and this one would go off, and this one would come off, and, and this one would go on over here, and you'd go blip, 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 and that means I'm going to turn right. 
unless it's a woman driving, you still don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I'm just funning around with you about that. I didn't mean anything by it. That's sequenced. These things are sequential. They work together, you see. One of them leads to the other. If you have virtue, then you must have understanding or insight or that which enables you to secure a right course and then proceed. That's important, to have that kind of understanding, to have that kind of perspicuity, that kind of knowledge, that kind of inside and outside. And then he says, add to your faith, knowledge, or rather virtue, and then knowledge, and then temperance. Most renditions anymore say self-control. Our word control is an interesting word, has an interesting etymology. It originally was counter-roll. Counter-roll. You ever try to drive down the road and you're going to somebody's uh, house down the state or somewhere, you're by yourself and you look on the road map and you get to find what you're looking for and then you're trying to fold the map up again? It will try your patience. I have littered before. Just wad the dumb thing out and throw it out the window. Because you can't refold a map. It's an impossibility. Your wife has to do that. So then, what he's saying is that you have to have control of things. Counter-roll. Re-rolling a scroll. If you're not careful, the scroll will get out of order and get anti-goggling and you'll have trouble rolling it up. But if you're really careful, you can roll it up again. This is counter-roll. Self-control is having reins on your passions. It's pulling when you need to gee and pulling when you need to haw. It's doing what we say, uh, what we said earlier, and that is keeping control of yourself so that you keep your vehicle between the ditches. That is so vital, so very, very important. It's being governor of oneself. It's being self-disciplined. It's being a self-master. It means that you're going to drive your own uh, vehicle and nobody else is going to tell you what to do. And so we have the business of self-control. Add to your faith. Now, faith is playing. Add to your faith virtue. And virtue is playing. And now you put it in knowledge and knowledge is playing. And then all of a sudden you put in temperance or self-control and then patience. I can give you all kinds of fancy definitions for patience. But I'll give you mine. It's staying in your place and waiting. Staying in your place and waiting. Don't let anybody knock you off course. You stay in the route that you're supposed to be following. This kind of patience here has not to do with controlling your temper. It isn't that at all. This kind of patience has to do with our ability to courageously face the problems of life, the adversities of, of living life, with a kind of steadfastness, with a kind of strong determination, with, with everything that you need to work through the difficult time. That's the kind of patience that he's talking about here. In West Texas, Brother Phil knows about this. He lived in Lubbock a while. We would say walking on when the wind's in your face. And sometimes out there, that takes some courage. 
The fact is that he is saying here, I want you to press on when the wind is in your face. Edmund Burke said it well. He said our patience will achieve more than our force. If you just stay in your place and live like you ought to, you cannot help but be alike. If you patiently endure every adversity that comes your way with the assurance that God cares on the other other side of the cubicle of difficulty that you're going through, the crucible, I mean, then at the end of it, you will have had patience. You just keep staying in the game and you wait patiently for what God wants, but don't you let anybody knock you off course. That's important. And then he says, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness. This is living life, all of it, with the involvement of God in it. Godliness. Involving God in the smallest things that we do. Do you know that God should be involved in the way you talk? Let me say something to you young people over here. I am tired The ones back here, too. I'm tired. I am sick and tired. I am sick and tired of hearing young people say, Oh, my God. That is a flippant use of God's name. And it should not be. I hear it on the news. I hear it in the movies. I hear it all over among the young people. It is one of the buzzwords. Whatever. And then, Oh, my God. I don't, somebody said, we don't mean anything by it, then that's a flippant use of God's name. You don't use God's name and not mean something by it. That's blasphemy, is what that is. And if you're doing that, you need to quit doing it. Because God does not like it. And so, that's a part of godliness. Your speech must be a representation of the fact that you have a godly disposition. It's deep respect for God, seeing and involving Him in even the smallest things. What we wear, where we go, what we do, with whom we do it. All of those things require that we say to ourselves, does God want me to wear this? Does God want me to go here? Does God want me to be with that person? Will I be influenced or will I be an influence? Should I take this job? Is there a church where I'm going for this job? Are there Christians there? If there aren't, can I do my job and help start a church at the same time? Can I speak to somebody about the gospel? Can I say all of these things are little things that involve God. And we must involve Him in all that we do. Deep respect. Seeing God in our simplest actions. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness. You know this Greek word. You don't know you know it, but you do. It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Phileo is the Greek term for this kind of longing, desire, for opportunities to do good to all men. We need so desperately among our brethren brotherly kindness. Not just among ourselves, but among people that are part of the race. God loves the sinner, the rankest prostitute, 
the most despicable homosexual, the most awful pornographer. He loves just as much as he loves you. And we must never lose sight of that. We must love our brethren uh, around us, the people around us, as much as we love our brethren. Oh, we ought to do good, especially to, to those of the household of faith. Certainly so. But we still should have a caring relationship for those around us. We should have a kind of longing desire to find opportunities to do good to all men. And seeing that possibility in the very smallest matters. At the grocery store. At the dry cleaners. At the football game. In the car. Oh. You talk about self-condemnation. I have trouble in the car. People get on my road. They turn into my lane. They don't give the turn signal soon enough. They get in my way. I'm going somewhere, and they're in my way. My wife says of me, Honey, she said, I'll say you are the kindest person that I know. You will stand at the door of the grocery store and let 40 women walk out in front of you and then try to run over all 40 of them in the parking lot. She said that. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. To be kind. To be kindly affectioned one to another. It's hard not to render evil for evil. It's hard not to want to pay back. But we must retard those things and we must see the possibility of brotherly kindness in even the very smallest actions, like thank you, and yes ma'am, and no ma'am. And I'll tell you something else. Could I just take a minute and ask you, whatever happened to I like you? What's wrong with just saying to somebody, I like you? We have determined in our imbecility, I might add, that that kind of activity is a sign of weakness. I'm here to tell you that saying something like that or similar to that to somebody is a sign of strength because it's a sign that you put yourself at the disposal of somebody else. And that's meekness. That strength under control. We so desperately need that. Add to your faith virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and brotherly kindness and then love. Well, I thought we just talked about love. Well, we did. But this is the higher love. In phileo, there is the seeking for mutual solace. We're kind to our brethren because it makes us feel good. And so in the reality... I get something out of it, right? In erotic love, we work to stimulate the partner to climax. We're the ones, though, that we want to take care of first in erotica. And so the object, again, is me, although mutual satisfaction bears a part. But in agape, love, in the higher kind of love, the feeling is aroused not because of what I am, but because of what He is. God is love. 
God doesn't love. Oh, sure, He loves. God isn't lovely. Sure, He's lovely. But the essence, the very nature, the thing that is most indigenous to the nature of God is love. He is love. God is love. This kind of love is a selfless love. That's God's love. It becomes a deliberate desire for the good of the object of the affection. Even when the, the object can't pay anything back, no reciprocity can be made. Even when the lovely, when the person being loved is unlovely, or unlovable, or despicable. That's the kind of love. It's the kind of love that allows you to love your enemy. And please be advised that this love is intellectual at its base, while the others are emotional at their base. This is the kind of love that can be commended. In fact, when asked what is the greatest commandment of all, Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and thy neighbor as thyself. On these two, he said, hang everything is fleshened out as a result of these two predicates. Love of God and love for your neighbor. That's what it's all about. And so we love not because of what I am, but because of what he is. And because of what he's done for us. Now then, look at that orchestration. Isn't that a fine sounding piece? Doesn't it work well for us? In this world in which we live, we must orchestrate our lives. We must make sure, and and please hear me carefully, if I can make one point that I want you to carry home with you. It is this. This well-orchestrated life must be your life. It is something that you make a deliberate choice to, to live. It is something that you make a deliberate decision to do. It is something that you decide on your own is going to be your personal commitment as long as you draw breath. Without that commitment, this orchestrated life will not play. If these things be in you, and abound the volume comes up. They make you that you shall neither neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The ultimate relationship with God. He that lacketh these things is blind. The word there in the Greek is myopia, a form of it. He's myopic. He's short-sighted. He's short-sighted. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Do you see that if you're not engaged in, in doing this well-orchestrated life, you have forgotten why you were baptized? You have forgotten that you became a new man in a new birth. And that the new birth merely uh, equips you to get ready to develop the character of the new man. And the character of the new man is a maturing process. And the process of maturation takes a well-orchestrated life. And so he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar, forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence. Would you go back to the beginning of this? 
Verse 5. These are what I call bookends. Expository bookends. And beside this, giving all diligence add to your faith. Every bit of this is to be done with diligent pursuit. Then at the end of it, he says, Wherefore, the rather, rather, brethren, rather than being myopic, rather than being those who have not added to their faith all of these things as the director of their lives, give diligence. Here's the other side of the book end. To make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. It's the only way to secure your future. It's the only way to make sure that you go to heaven when you die. And it's the responsibility of every person to do that. You can't go to heaven on your wife's faith. You can't go to heaven on your husband's diligence. You can't add your wife's... If she adds to her faith knowledge, it has nothing to do with you. If your son chooses not to add to his faith diligence, diligent pursuits of this orchestrated life, then that's, he has to make that choice. I don't know if you noticed or not, we started out this whole series by talking about needing wisdom to make wise choices. I return to it, folks, because you have to decide which way you're going to go. Is this life going to be yours, or are you going to let the culture rule? Are you going to orchestrate a life that's in accordance with God's plan for what constitutes spiritual maturity? Or are you going to allow the world to come in and through a process of gradual erosion just take you down into a pit of putridity to such an extent that you barely, even with the grace of God, could get out of it? The choice is yours. You decide. I decide. Let's decide properly. Let's not let another day pass. Young people, make your decision now that you're going to have your own faith. Make your decision right now tonight that you're going to follow God no matter what it takes. And if you're out of harmony with God's will, no matter your age, let me encourage you to come and give your life to Him this morning, this evening. Would you not come and confess your faith in Christ and be baptized tonight if you're not a Christian? That's the only way you can start this life. You can't have a well-orchestrated life when you haven't been born yet. You have to be born again. And the way you're born into the family of God is through the Spirit, through water and the Spirit. And, and, and please be advised, the Church of Christ didn't make up the idea that you have to be baptized to be saved. That came from the Bible. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. God said that. We didn't. We're just trying to say to you what He said. Would you come to Him and give Him your heart? Repent of your sins, confess your faith, and be baptized? And there are bound to be people in this audience that have lost their way. You started out a well-orchestrated life, and now you're in a minor key. Now you're saying stuff you ought not to say. You're doing things you ought not to do. You're thinking things you ought not to think. You're being with people that you ought not to be, and they are influencing you instead of you influencing them. The culture's got hold of you. Why don't you come back? Repentance, confession, and prayer will restore you to a right relationship with your Father. And we'll all join hands. And with a mighty kind of juggernaut, we'll walk across this land. And if nobody comes with us, it's okay. We'll go together and we'll get to heaven. Because if you miss heaven, you've just missed all there is. Would you come to Jesus tonight while we stand and sing?